Hey guys, you are listening to Killer Cocktails, where the drinks are stiff, but the bodies are stiffer. This is a casual true crime podcast where two friends get drunk and talk about gruesome murders. Each week we pick a different drink whose name or ingredients set the tone for our stories. Welcome to Killer Cocktails. This is Jackie. This is Drea. And this week's episode might be the end of days. <laughs> we started from the bottom. Now we're here. And now we're here. <laughs> With 40s duct taped to our hands. So it's our 40th episode. And Jackie thought we would never make it to this episode. I never thought we were really going to make a podcast. I was joking the whole time. And then... We got a couple episodes in and you didn't seem like you were backing off the joke. Nope. <laughs> You're like, oh, we're going to become friends. We're going to hang out. No, we are now no, business, partners. business partners. <laughs> and now we're friends. No, <laughs> Reverse that. Um, oh, anywho. So I was like, Edward 40 hands for 40. And I went, I've done that. I made it out alive. BTDT, you know, mm-hmm. been there, done that. And now we're here again. Yeah. Um, I have a couple bushes strapped to my hands. I've got some PBRs. Perfect. And technically, we're supposed to be playing with malt beverages, um, but we decided that we didn't want to die. We didn't want to bring you guys a horrible episode, so we went for lower alcohol content. Because, let's be honest, 80 ounces of even the lightest of beers is a super stupid thing to do. Too much beers. And our intern, Kimri, was telling us that because we are, in theory, adults... Uh. We were overthinking this way too much. This was like we like a good I week. I couldn't stop thinking about <laughs> what a bad idea it was, mm-hmm. how I could make it less of a bad idea. Like your little, tell them what you did with your hands. Yeah, because I remembered the last time that I played, uh, my hands didn't like how cold it was. So I made myself some mittens, some little... Uh, some little Jackie mittens. <laughs> yeah, so what do I want to call it? It's like a... Like a Cool, it's like a koozie. I kept trying to say that word. Yeah. And I kept saying coolie in my head. Coolie. Coolio. <laughs> so it was like a, like a, <laughs> that was a hard word. Uh, a koozie. Yeah. So I made myself some paper towel koozies. And it feel, I am cloud nine right now. Yeah. With the exception of the fact that I've got 80 ounces of beer strapped to me. <laughs> I feel like I don't recommend playing this game. But if for some reason you do, I would recommend doing the paper towel trick Jackie was just talking about because my hands were so cold and I was so uncomfortable and now my hands are warm and so is the beer and now the beer tastes real gross. When I was talking about this the other day, um, Aaron was recommending that I wear bicycle gloves. Oh my God. <laughs> that way you still have your digits out. Yeah, yeah. You know, you get some fingerless bike gloves and that seemed like a really great idea because I also, okay, now let's get into this. Oh no. I can't handle tape on my skin. <laughs> how how many other times were you taped in your life? A lot. No, after my back surgery, they tape a bunch of shit ah. to you. And I will tell you, again, kind of like type 2 fun where you forget about a lot of stuff. I was on a lot of medicine. Mm. But to me, the most painful part of those back surgeries was pulling all that tape off my back. Oh. It was so painful. Because oh. you're like laying on it for days. It becomes a part of you. <laughs> Don't you sweat through it? Uh, it's special body tape, surgery tape that hurts. Anyway, so I got a tape thing. So I'm not excited about this tape on my hands. Yeah, it'll be fine. They it'll will be, be fine. It'll be fine. I will be, be fine. fine. It's fine. It's, it's fine. fine. It's fine. Anywho, I digress. We digress. It's our 40th episode. Thank you guys so much. Long if, intro ever. <laughs> if you guys have been with us from the beginning until now, thank you so much. If you're just joining us, thank you so much. Way to pick an episode. Oh my god. It's not always like this. Usually we have tasty cocktails. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, thank you guys for engaging and following us and we hope you enjoy these cocktails and these murders. Because we I sure got do. A good story, you know? Yeah. And this episode will be a good story for us for the future. Aw, memories. Memories. Um, but okay. I think Jackie had some 40 trivia for I us. I do. Um, my lap, my iPad has gone to sleep, Kimmery, so if you could wake it back up. Just so that you know, literally both of our hands are duct taped to 40s right now, so we're having to have Kimmery operate all electronics. So this is some sort of our article, uh, vinepair.com maybe. It's going to be talking about some beers, okay? We're drinking beer. Yeah. Perfect. This is about uh, Bush Signature Copper Lager. You're That's not, what I'm drinking. You're in Bush, but I don't know that you're in Signature Copper Lager. Hard to, hard to tell off of your uh, covered up duct tape label, but 
Let's pretend that that's what you're drinking. Okay. Appearance, discount maple syrup. Yes. Bouquet, plain wax. <laughs> Mouthfeel, absent. <laughs> Taste, flavor is lacking, which is a godsend, as this thin brown <laughs> gutter runoff <laughs> imparts the strong, bitter aftertaste of an especially memorable vomit. <laughs> This particular Bush signature vintage was tested midway through the battery uh, and was so ghastly that it necessitated the upward adjustment of the five previous entries. This guy didn't like this beer. Um, Steel Reserve. Yeah. Uh, Oh, this is, we're not drinking this, but I, it's a small enough one that I'll say, taste, a dirty oily rag soaked in paint thinner, (laughs) snotty handkerchiefs. 6.2 6.2 snotty anchorages out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gross. That was steel reserves? Yeah. King Cobra. That's what my old oh. roommate's boyfriend would drink. Yeah. Uh, I was pre- I was prepared. Oh, uh, what else is funny in here? Mouthfeel, grimy pool water. Taste. I was prepared to be seduced by King Cobra somewhat <laughs> since it was the only sample actually tested in the classic 40-ounce format. Oh, because he did cans of the smaller ones. Uh, instead, all that meant was that I had more of it to pour down the drain. A truly abysmal liquid that I would be pleased to never have inside my mouth again. 5.8 sweaty feet out of 10. <laughs> Is there a Mickey's on there? Let's see. It's very hard to do with one thumb. Back in the day in college, if I drank 140 of Steel Reserves, I could clear a beer pong table. It was awesome. You were saying, like, that's your magic. Yeah. Colt 45, very close tasting to regular beer, but the alcohol pinch is so noticeable that there's really no wondering if this is supposed to be good or just get you sideways. Famoso, Modelo, yeah. So, I'm angry about it. I knew you would out-college me in this. She just slammed the last of it. Of one of them. (laughs) (laughs) I, got the I have so much. Lo- I've got like two beers in here. <laughs> so what you're saying is I'm the best. You 100% are the best. I'm the best. <laughs> Ooh, basically, all I was going to tell you is 40s don't taste good. Yeah. But they're okay. If you do the malt ones, they're the most bang for your buck. That's malt why, wise. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm going to tell you <laughs> about Edward Wayne Edwards. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> double down on Edward. I get double points. I like it. <laughs> uh, have you ever heard of Ed Edwards? I don't believe so. No. Well, Ed Edwards. All right. He's born in Akron, Ohio. What is he known as? You're about to tell me. Um, the serial killer you've never heard of. Uh, so he's born in Akron, Ohio. Uh, he grew up an orphan after witnessing his mother commit suicide. Ah, at what age? Youngin. Oh my god. So, a lot of information about Edward's life comes from an autobiography that he wrote. Mm-hmm. So take it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to tell you some stuff and you can be like, maybe. Um, the name of the autobi- autobiography is Metamorphosis of a Criminal. Mm-hmm. The True Life Story of Ed Edwards. Mm-hmm. Um, he published it in 1972. According to Ed Edwards, um, he was abused both physically and emotionally in an orphanage because his dad was never there. His mom committed suicide, so now he's in an orphanage. So I think it's pretty safe to say that's probably true, that he had a pretty horrific childhood. Um, he was allowed to leave juvie. So he like he had trouble. He ended up being in, a, in juvie. Mm-hmm. Juvenile detention center. Um, he was able to leave early from his sons to go join the Marines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he went AWOL and then he was dishonorably discharged. Mm. Uh, he moved around a lot in his twenties and his thirties. He would do odd jobs. Uh, he has been a ship docker, a vacuum salesman, a handyman. Um, he was all over most of his life. If he wasn't in prison or he's not like out in the wind, he lived in Louisville, uh, Louisville, Kentucky. In 1955, um, he escaped from jail. So he's got, I wish I had like a timeline of all the things. Uh, he would go to jail and he would escape a lot. Mm. Seems to be an elusive fellow. 
1955, uh, he escapes from jail in Akron. Um, and he just kind of moves across the country. He's just kind of, he robs gas stations when he needs money. It's kind of his MO. Um, he late in his book, he says, I never wore a disguise because I wanted to be famous. Oh. Oh. So you're getting a sense yeah. maybe of. What's um, the year right now? What's that? That was in 55. 55. Okay. He ends up in 1961 being on the FBI's most wanted list. Mm. So he gets what he wants. He has some notoriety. Um, He's eventually caught. He's imprisoned in Leavenworth. uh, And he's paroled in 1967. So he's just kind of since adulthood in and out of trouble. Um, He claims... That so he's paroled in 1967 from Leavenworth. He claims that a Leavenworth guard was really influential in his life and kind of got him to see the light and not to be a bad dude anymore. And that's why he was paroled. Um, he claims he's reformed. He ends up getting married. He becomes a motivational speaker. He writes this book. Like he goes, I see the error in my ways. I'm no longer this bad guy. Yeah. Um, Ed Edwards has appeared on two television shows. Mm. He has been on To Tell the Truth and What's My Line. And here's What's what, My Line? And here's what I'll say about these shows. So I think both of these shows, if not one of them, has had a recent, like, current resurgence. But if we go back in time, like, one year, two years, I was visiting my parents. And this cute little thing that they do is they have, like, a... Um, in there, like just outside the kitchen, like they have a dining room with like a dining room table and all that stuff. But just outside the kitchen is like a like a, a like a bistro set, like mm-hmm. a glass top table with two chairs that just fits them, and like and that's where unless they're having company over, like that's where they eat their dinner. And they would bring my dad's laptop over to this little bistro table, and they would put on old like black and white episodes that they found on YouTube. Of old game shows of what's my line and to tell the truth. Wow. And for like a year or two, that was just what they did. They would just run through these old ass episodes mm-hmm. and they would like, and maybe they'd seen it at some like decades ago in their life or it was new to them. Yeah. But I can remember like going to visit them and it was kind of fun watching mm-hmm. a super old show where and I think what's my line is you're, it's one person comes up in front of three celebrities and you're like telling them clues, I think, about your job. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to guess what your job is. Okay. And then to tell the truth, you have three people who are all pretending to be the same person. Mm-hmm. So you'd say like, Ed Edwards is a con man. He was a prisoner. He did all this other stuff. And now he like is a motivational speaker, blah, 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 blah. And you have one guy go, hey, my name is Ed Edwards. I am a con man. And they would go to the next person and go, my name is Ed Edwards. And I'm a con man. And go to the next one. My name's Ed Edwards, and I'm a con man. And then the celebrities have to ask them questions and figure out who's the real Ed Edwards. Yeah. So he was on both those shows. Whoa. Isn't that crazy? So was he down in L.A.? He was, like, getting on these shows? I don't know where they're feeding these shows from. Because, I mean, he was all over, but, like, in no way was California, like, his major state. Yeah. Um, but I just thought that was kind of funny, because, like, we also did that episode where the guy was on the dating game. Like, mm-hmm. there's a certain level of, like, just being, like bravos that Mm -hmm. you can anyway uh okay so even though he's reformed and he's a good guy now by 1982 he's back living that crime life uh he's imprisoned in pennsylvania for two years for arson so he's like in and out for all sorts of like random crimes he's a bank robber he's like uh i think there's some like violent aggressive stuff in there too okay so that's ed edwards in 1980 Tim Hack and Kelly Drew are murdered in Wisconsin. These are, it's a young couple. Mm-hmm. Their deaths are referred to as the Sweetheart Murders. They were uh, murdered on like a lover's lane of mm-hmm. sorts. Um, he, Edwards is questioned in this crime, but they don't really have a basis, so they release him. It's not until about 30 years later that his Ooh. daughter, April... Belasquio tips off police officers after watching a true crime show being like, Ooh, I think my dad did that. Whoa. My dad's been obsessed with serial killers and crime. 
we were in the area at the time we had to immediately move right after like for whatever reason she gets the heebie-jeebies mm-hmm. and she calls and she's like check out my dad he's like a 70 year old at this point yeah they check him out dna matches <gasps> Ooh, and then he starts confessing to stuff so uh his first conviction isn't for the lovers uh, lovers lane crime that he gets uh connected by dna um, he gets a life sentence for the murder of Billy Lavaco and Judy Straub. They, uh, they were killed in Ohio in 1977. So like he has this like kind of string of crimes too. Um, he also confesses that in 1996, so not that long ago, um, to the murder of Danny boy Edwards, uh, basically like they had kind of adopted Danny and Edwards had murdered him in order to get insurance money. Okay. He was like, he wasn't officially adopted through the courts. Like a judge hadn't signed off on it, but they had allowed Danny to change his last name to be there. Like, mm-hmm. so he was very much kind of their adopted kid. Um, so he kills this child in order to get like, so he's just that dude. Yeah. Um, so now people, and specifically this guy, this guy, John A. Cameron. So remember that name, John A. Cameron. They start pinning all sorts of murders on Edwards. Um, this guy, Phil St- uh, Stanford, in his book, he claims that Edwards is responsible for a murder of these, this couple in Portland, Oregon in 1960. Um, that two other men were arrested in prison for the murders. They were released early, I think, due to good, good, uh, you know, good behavior. Um but the authorities maintain that, like, those are the guys who killed him. But this other guy's like, uh, he's in town. Like, all the evidence kind of points to it being Edwards. And these guys, like, wrongfully went to prison. Um, they're free now, but they never should have been in prison. Yeah. Um, some investigators have noted that Edwards lived in Northern California during each of the Zodiac killings. Cool. Um, so Edwards' daughter, the one who, like, ratted him out, she thinks that he's the Zodiac. She can remember being a child. He would watch news reports about the Zodiac and he would yell. That's not how it happened. Hmm. Have you heard the podcast Root of Evil? Oh, we'll get we'll get to okay, that. Okay, okay. Um, so Johnny Cameron. So to give you a little backstory on him, he's a parole officer. He uh, is up in Montana. So he worked in law enforcement for a really long time. He had a couple that died in Montana that he really wanted to solve that case. Decades and decades go by. Eventually they figure out that it's Ed Edwards that killed them. So he becomes obsessed with the case and he's like, I think Ed Edwards is a serial killer. I think he's done all these other things. It kind of starts to become a conflict with the parole board where they're like, you're throwing a lot of other police work under the bus. You're Mm -hmm. saying that people are wrong. They kind of are pressuring him where it's like, if you want to continue to have your job, you got to let this go. And he's like, can't let it go. He quits. He's Whoa. like, before I get fired, I'm going to quit. Yeah. And he just devotes his life to looking into Ed Edwards. He kind of, in my opinion, he kind of goes off the deep end. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some merit to his Zodiac stuff. There's a lot of like interesting things when it comes to the Zodiac. But this dude literally loops in any unsolved crime mm. and says that it's Ed Edwards. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to like what I mean by that. Um, he's widely like, so Johnny Cameron is widely renowned as a crackpot um, because he says that Ed Edwards killed Lacey Peterson. Okay. Adam Walsh, the kid from so Adam Walsh. Yeah. Uh, John Benet Ramsey, Teresa Halbach uh, from Making a Murderer. Uh, the Black Dahlia. Okay. If he was to have killed Black Dahlia, he was 13 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's obsessed with the idea that Edwards, that his MO in his mind, the way he's framed it is that he gets off on the idea of pinning murders on other people. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's part of his tie to the Zodiac is what Cameron is saying is that the Zodiac has said in his letters, I'm going to kill people long after I'm dead. Mm. And what he means by that is I'm going to frame people who are, he goes, there's tons of people on death row. There's people who died after the Zodiac probably died. Like 
that he's setting all these things up that he really loved making other people look guilty. Yeah. That he would be in jail with somebody, hear their story, and be like, all right, cool, I know how to set you up. That that was his thing that he was into. Um, But, like, the ties that he makes, again, the Zodiac stuff kind of holds water to a degree. Mm Mm-hmm. Lacey Peterson, it's like, the, I can't even remember what his reasoning is. It was so, I remember reading it and just rolling my eyes so hard. Yeah. The John JonBenet Ramsey, it's that the letter was signed S-B-T-C. And he was like, well, that means signed by the cross, which is the cross symbol that the Zodiac used. Okay. Like, there's some major reaching yeah. that happens that's like... I don't know, embarrassing to a certain degree. Um, but then there's some other really good detective work because he's a, he's a former police officer. Like, yeah. there's so much good, like, it almost muddies the good stuff by how crazy he gets out into the weeds. So in March 2017, so 2011 is when, or 2010, 2011 is when Ed Edwards gets arrested and starts copping to all these crimes. Again, he's like an old dude. So in 2017, there's a detective, Chad Garcia, uh, who's in a Wisconsin uh, county place, um, he's in charge of the sweetheart murders. He describes them and he's like, Hey, he follows the tip. Like he's the police officer in charge of the, the daughter saying, Hey, I think my dad, blah, blah, blah. He's like, you know, I think he's a serial killer. I think there's a bunch of other crimes that can be tied to him. Um, I'm less inclined to think that he's the Zodiac. I don't think all these other crimes, I think that's a bit reaching, but I definitely think the five murders that we've pinned on him, are not the extent to which um, he was operating. So he died as an old man in jail in 2011. Like he kind of copped to a bunch of murders and then he died. His hmm. daughter taught his daughter, like ratted him out. And I don't say that in like a facetious tone, like justly. Um, and he died a year later. After so how, many, to- how many murders did he confess to at the end? He admitted to two, like, Lover's Lane-type murders yeah. and the uh, adopted son. And then the police officer who's kind of going off. There's a bunch. So a bunch of people tie him to a bunch of different stuff. Got it. That, that was part of the Zodiac thing was that guy was like, what Ed Edwards, like, he, we only have five murders on him. But what he got off on were Lover's Lane murders, which is a majority of the Zodiac's killings. Um, and he got off on... Pinning murders on people. He got off on making people scared and not just people, his family. Mm -hmm. He had family in San Francisco. He had family who their cousins, like his cousins had kids who rode the school buses. So when he made that school bus threat, that scared his family. Like a lot of the stuff that the Zodiac did scared members of Ed Edwards' family and that that he really loved making them scared. He loved... Like there was, I think one of his family members got lumped into and was a, a potential suspect in a crime like Mm. that. He really, the way that Cameron spits it is he liked making other people fall for his crimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting theory. There's all sorts of like, there's documentaries that this can't like this Cameron guy has put tons of energy into all sorts of media you can consume and it's kind of like when you hear like that there's no moon landing. Like mm. it's kind of fun to hear a wild and outlandish theory, and then yeah. you go, "I mean, that part makes sense." Where you don't believe what you're hearing, but it's also kind of entertaining. Yeah, definitely. Um, Edward Edwards. That's crazy. I didn't know. The serial killer you never knew of. Huh. Yeah, that that's one where I was like, "Oh, if I had a ton of time, like you could fall down a bunch of rabbit holes, yeah. and get some really cool information." There's some jumps in here. There's you can fill it with, and that that's what was hard is I I tried to make it clean and linear and like go through, but none of the information can you trust? Yeah, because it's either by this guy who I kind of think is a little cuckoo, or it's from his own mouth, and he's I think a little bit of a liar. Yeah, or like it's just kind of all over, and I didn't know what to say was real. Yeah. So it's an interesting story. I definitely recommend. There's all sorts. Again, if you like want to go down a story, I think it's a decent story to go down. Yeah. Wow. I'll definitely look into it more. I want to go down all the rabbit holes. Um, I think we're going to take a short break. 
Um, again, we don't recommend Edward Forty Hands. Don't, play but if this you game. have a whole afternoon and you are we did over twenty one years old, I was okay. So part of the nervousness that I've had for this whole endeavor was that we were going to try and do Edward Forty Hands in a very limited amount of time because mm-hmm. we're recording an episode, and I was like. I know how the body metabolized. Like, I was nervous about the amount of volume coming in, how much alcohol, that that it would be, like, dangerous levels of blackout, puke, mm-hmm. like, danger city. Yeah. But it was a very, like... Yeah. It was a very accommodating experience we and environment. overthought it. We, we made sure we didn't get malt liquors. We got the, like, least what amount did you, of alcohol. This was over five hours, Kimberly? What did you say? Five or six hours? Yeah. Yeah. started at, what, two? Drea... I want you to tell me a story about murder. Do you want to check on in and I'll tell you the story? I'm tucked in. I'm so excited. I'm ready. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you about Carl Eugene Watts. Okay. A.K.A. the Sunday Morning Slasher. Carl is born on November 7th of 1953 in Killian, Texas. His father is a private first class in the army and his mother is a kindergarten art teacher. Before Carl turns two years old, his parents separate, and he goes to live with his mother. Um, So they're, like, bouncing around kind of all over the United States. And they finally end up in Inkster, Michigan. And in 1962, his mother remarries, and they have two daughters. While growing up, Carl gets meningitis. And while he's sick, he starts getting these extreme fevers, which causes brain damage. And so, um, because of this brain damage, he is kind of delayed, and so he has to be held back a grade. So, when he returns to school, Carl has a hard time keeping up with other students. He starts getting really bad grades, and he starts getting bullied a lot. Um, Carl is described as a very polite and a soft-spoken young man. Um, He's very athletic, and so he starts uh, doing, like, a boxing program. However, by age 15, he starts showing violent behavior which is usually directed towards women. Uh, for example, one morning when he's doing his paper route, he knocks on an apartment door of a young woman, and she opens it, and he attacks her. When, ar- uh, when arrested, he tells police he just felt like beating someone up. So, and there's no rhyme or re- reason to this. Uh, so Carl is tried for the attack, and he's sentenced to a mental hospital in Detroit. Within three months, he's evaluated and placed on outpatient treatment. So according to a psychiatric assessment, Carl has an IQ of between, I've read a couple of reports, 68 and 75. Uh, so he's kind of below average. It's kind of a sliding scale. So we've talked about this. So mm-hmm. it's like a sliding scale. So 100 is average. Mm-hmm. 70 is mentally challenged. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of flack if you're going to give like death penalty to someone below 70. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of in this like he's maybe a little below, maybe a yeah, little, little above, above, but he's yeah. flirting he's flirting with the line yeah. of mentally challenged. Exactly. But um an officer who had been interrogating him had a different opinion. He thought that Carl appeared very very intelligent and had an excellent memory. So into his mind he's like, "Oh no, he's playing to the system. Like he's so intelligent that he knows how to kind of thwart these I wonder why tests. he thinks that. Yeah. Um, so in a doctor's final review of Carl, he says, this patient is a paranoid young man who is struggling for control of strong homicidal impulses. His behavior controls are faulty and there's a high potential for violent acting out. This individual is considered dangerous. Okay. So naturally with the diagnosis like this, yeah, Carl is released hmm. and he goes back to high school. He's uh, high school age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So he gets back into sports, but he has a hard time getting his grades back up. He also starts using drugs, and he becomes a loner. Uh, Despite all of this, he graduates at the age of 19. He's accepted to Lane College on a football scholarship, but he's he's expelled after only three months because he's uh, accused of stalking and assaulting young women around campus. Okay. In the meantime, he is accepted into a special scholarship and mentoring program sponsored by Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. Prior to attending the program, Carl is uh, again evaluated at the outpatient facility where it is determined that he's still a danger and he has a strong impulse to beat up women, yet due to the right to confidentiality policies, staff members are unable to alert authorities or the college Carl is about to attend. I'm so torn on stuff like that. 
Because isn't there at a point when it's a danger to society and others yeah. that they have uh, the right and are supposed to report? Maybe not of the time, but now. On October 25th of 1974, Lenora Knowski answers her door and is attacked by a man who says he's looking for Charles. She fights back and survives. So in the middle of the like, mid-morning, knock, yeah. knock, knock, someone comes to her door. Hey, I'm looking for Charles. I don't know what you're... And he attacks her. Hmm. On October 30th. Does Charles mean anything? Nope. He's just saying it. He just chooses a name. Mm -hmm. So on October 30th, Gloria Steele, who's 19, is found dead near campus with 33 stab wounds to her chest. It's very, that's a lot. A witness reports speaking with a man at Gloria's complex who said he was looking for Charles. So we're seeing commonality. Charles, Charles, Charles. So, Diane Williams reports being attacked on November 12th under the same circumstances. She survives and manages to see the attacker's car and reports it to police. The police round up some suspects and Carl is picked out of a lineup by Lenore and Diane, and he is arrested on assault assault and battery charges. He then admits to attacking 15 women, but refuses to talk about Gloria's murder. Hmm. Prior to Carl's trial, he has a court-ordered evaluation. The examining doctor describes Carl as a dangerous person and feels he would most likely attack again and is found competent to stand trial. Carl pleads no contest and he receives a one-year sentence on the assault and battery charges, but is never charged in Gloria's murder. In June of 1976, he is out of jail and back home in Detroit with his mother. Um, and then in uh, April of 1980, Ann Arbor police are called to the home of 17-year-old Tr- uh, Shirley Small. She has been attacked and repeatedly cut with an instrument resembling a scalpel. She bled to death on the sidewalk where she fell. Mm. So, finally, there's a task force. It's formed. Um, they start bringing all the information. What, what year-ish are we? Um, like a little bit after the um, 1980. So, okay. we're like mid, mid-1980. Okay. Um, they start bringing... I'm about to be born. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, so they bring all this information uh, together from the last five months. Um, but the only thing is they don't have enough evidence, like physical evidence. Okay. Um, or, phys- uh, or they don't have witnesses either. So they're kind of just in the wind. Um, but after uh, reading about all this information, a Sergeant James Arthurs contacts this uh, this special task force, um, and he tells them about his experiences with this man named Carl and how their cases fit Carl's M.O. Okay. By this time, Carl is working with his stepfather at a trucking company, and he's had a child, and he's married. In, in October of 1979, Carl is arrested for prowling around in Southfield, Detroit, suburb. The charges are later dropped, though prowling around Mm -hmm. so he's like kind of getting caught yeah letting go he's kind of like walking through yards mm -hmm. he shouldn't be walking through by uh so between 1979 and 1980 attacks on women in detroit and surrounding areas become more frequent and violent the victims are women between the ages of 14 and 44 it's a crazy span Mm -hmm. and they are strangled stabbed extremely beaten or drowned and a majority of the attacks happen between 3 a.m and 5 a.m about how many attacks are we talking? Um, I'll tell you the number at the end. Okay, but it's kind of it's over. But it's tw- it's it's more than it's five. Multiple. Yes, yeah. it's like over twenty at this point. Oh shit! Mm-hmm. And so because they're so early and they're kind of like random and mm-hmm. um just to women, uh, then he starts getting the name of the Sunday morning slayer, slasher. Sunday morning slasher. Yeah. Okay, makes sense. Uh, one of these um uh, attacks is on a woman named Rebecca Huff, who's 20 at the time, and she's stabbed to death in Ann Arbor. By May of 1980, Carl is divorced. Uh, His wife states that it is due to his strange behavior, which includes his habit of leaving their home for hours immediately after they have sex. That's strange. Yeah. Like, you're married to this man, you have intercourse... And then he just bounces... Like, leaves the house. Mm-hmm. Until, like, morning time. On a regular occasion. Mm-hmm. And he's doing other strange things around the house, I'm sure. That's weird. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, at that time, girls are gossipy, but I would like to think that you're talking to your girlfriends and you're like, hey, my husband, like, straight up leaves the house after we have sex. And everyone's <laughs> like, that's not normal. Yeah, mine doesn't do that. But maybe that's not... Uh, maybe 
female relationships have changed since then and now. Yeah. So he's in Detroit. He's kind of doing that in that area. But now he goes up to Ontario. So in, in July of 1980 in Windsor, Ontario, Irene Kadakshris, uh 22, is attacked but lives uh, after having her throat slashed. And then Sandra Dolpe, 20, she lives through being stabbed from behind. So detectives discover the, that Carl's car is recorded as leaving Windsor and de, uh, for Detroit after each attack. And so Carl becomes um, like their main suspect. He's the dude. This. They yeah. want to pin it on him bad. So on November, uh, on November 15th, 1980, an Ann Arbor woman contacts police after she becomes frightened when she realizes that a man is following her. The woman hides in a doorway and the police following are, her like in what capacity yeah, on the street. He's following her in a car. He's like she's going she's walking home or wherever she's going and he's following her in a vehicle. That's terrifying. So she's in a doorway. She's waiting for the police and they like follow this car and they see that this car is going up and down the street frantically looking for this woman. And when they pull over the man, Ugh. it's Carl. So inside the car, they find screwdrivers and wood filing tools. But the most important discovery is a book that has Rebecca Huff's name on it. And you probably won't remember because there's been a lot of victims so far. Yeah. But Rebecca Huff was a victim from earlier. In late January of 1981, Carl is brought in on a warrant to give a blood sample. And like the lead detective takes the opportunity to talk to Carl, but the interview ends without any confession, and the blood test fails to link him to any crimes. Hmm. But uh, by that spring, uh, Carl moves to Columbus, Texas, because he's like, "I'm hot here. I gotta get away." They're I'm on gonna to move me. to Texas. Mm-hmm. It's too hot where I am. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna move to Texas where it's cooler. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Carl starts working for an oil company. And uh, Columbus, Columbus is about 70 miles outside of Houston. So on the weekends, Carl makes his way over to Houston. Um, but the lead detective is like, nah, 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 nah. I'm going to get you, Carl. So he forwards his file to the Houston police, who are able to locate Carl, but unable to find any evidence linking him directly to any of the Houston crimes. So on March 27th of 1981, I'm going to tell you, this is back to back to back to back. Attacks. Okay. So on March uh, um, on March twenty seventh, nineteen eighty one, Edith Ledet, a thirty four year old medical student, is stabbed to death while jogging in Houston. So six months later, on September twelfth of uh, of September twelfth of that same year, twenty five year old Elizabeth Montgomery is attacked while walking her dog at midnight, staggering into her nearby apartment before she collapses. I want you to be able to walk your dog at midnight. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. Two hours later, 21-year-old year, Susan Wolf is knifed to death outside her apartment. Oh, he's on a spree. Mm-hmm. But then we're going to fast forward a little bit. Okay, so in January, 27-year-old Phyllis Tam is found on the campus of Rice University. She's um, hung up on an article of her own clothing. Yeah. And another Rice student, 25-year-old Margaret Fossey, is killed that same month. And she is found in the trunk of her car. Um, her throat is crushed by a powerful blow that produced death by asphy- asphyxiation. On February 7th, uh, Elena Samander, a 20-year-old co-ed, is found strangled and partially nude in a trash can, not far from a tavern where uh, she had spent the evening. In March of 1982, Emily Lacroix is reported missing from Brookshire, Brookshire Texas, which is 40 miles north of Houston. But uh, at first, authorities don't kind of lump it in with mm-hmm. all the other murders that are going on. Uh, on March 31st, 20-year-old Mary Costello is found strangled and semi-nude in a ditch in Houston. Three nights later, 19-year-old Kristen McDonald van- vanishes while hitchhiking home from a party on the Rice campus. Su- yeah. Suzanne Searles, 25, goes missing on April 5th. Her shoes and broken glasses are found by her car in the parking lot of her um, apartment complex. Carrie Mae Jefferson, who's uh, 32, vanishes after working the night shift on April 15th. And 26-year-old Yolanda Degrassi is killed the following night. She is stabbed six times in her home. High school students. So this is like you're out. This is you're in your house. Like it's mm-hmm. kind of all over. All over the place. Age range kind of sporadic. That's so scary because you think of like, I can remember people talking about uh, like being scared of the son of Sam kill. It was like, okay, 
when you didn't know who Ted Bundy was, you knew that whoever that murderer was mm-hmm. loved girls with brunette hair parted down, down the middle. middle. If you were son of Santa, like that, mm-hmm. you, you'd be like, there's a certain, like, a I'm profile. not going to, I'm not going to be out after 10. Mm-hmm. I'm not going like, there's nothing. You, if you live in that area, mm-hmm. you're terrified. Mm-hmm. Nothing about the way you look. Nothing about like there's that's just so scary because mm-hmm. you have to live your normal life. You have to go to class. You have to go yeah. to work. You have to do all these other things. And you're scared that someone's going to break into your house. Yeah. That someone's going to catch you while you're walking to your car. Walking your dog. Oh, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um. So on May of 23rd of 1982, Carl attacks roommates Lori Lister and Melinda Aguilar. He ties them up and then attempts to drown Lori in their apartment bathtub. Mm. Melinda is able to escape by jumping head first off her balcony. So she's tied Jesus. up and she just goes for it. She's like, this is better than what's happening. Mm-hmm. Lori, who's the one he's trying to drown in the bathtub, yeah. is saved by a neighbor and Carl is caught and arrested. Okay. The body. Of- How am I going to get mad? Oh, it's coming. The body of Michelle Monday is found the same day, drowned in her bathtub in a nearby apartment. So he'd already attacked someone, drowned them, and then came across Mm -hmm. these two roommates and started it again. So under interrogation, Carl refuses to talk. Harris County uh, Assistant District Attorney Ira Jones makes a deal with Carl in order to get him to confess. And he's like, Carl, I'll give you immunity to the charge of murder if you just confess to these other murders. And Ira is hoping to bring closure to the families of the some, like, 50 unsolved murders in the Houston area at this point. So Carl eventually admits to attacking 19 women, 13 of which he confesses to murdering. By the time it is all over, Carl admits to 80 additional murders. And 80 is my tie... We did 40 you and 40. Asshole. That is 80. You asshole. What was your tie? It's a good tie. Edward Edwards. Oh, Edward Edwards. Okay, yeah. I had forgotten. It was so oh. long ago. Drea. Okay, hold on. I'm mad. Did he have immunity for every murder ever? Uh, He had immunity. So at the time, the district attorney had no idea to the extent of his crime. Okay. No one what's did. What's the deal he makes with them? So he's like... For the Houston area, we'll give you immunity to these murders. And Carl's like, cool. I feel like you... Okay. 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 So, so he confesses to those. And then in the meantime, Carl admits to those 80 additional murders in Michigan and Canada. Which don't incorporate Houston. So I don't don't need to be as mad as I'm getting. Not yet, but you will. But Carl refuses to give details because he does not have immunity agreement for those murders. So he's like, well, I might have done these. Uh, it's in the wind. I'm not going to tell you anything, really. Carl pleads guilty to one count of breaking and entering with intent to kill in Houston. Judge Shaver decides that the water in the bathtub could be constituted as a deadly weapon, which would result in the parole board not being able to count Carl's quote unquote good conduct time when determining his parole eligibility okay so on september 3rd of 1982 carl's carl is sentenced to 60 years in prison in 1987 after a failed attempt to escape prison by slipping through the bars carl decides to begin appealing his sentence but his appeal lacked the support of his attorney okay but in october of 1987 Unrelated to any of Carl's appeals, the court decides that criminals must be told that a deadly weapon finding may occur during their indictment and to fail to do so violates the criminal's rights. So there's an adjustment to policy. Mm -hmm. Which is unfortunately good news for Carl because the appeals court decide that because the judge failed to tell Carl that the bathtub water is deemed a lethal weapon, he would not be required to serve his entire sentence. The ruling also reclassified Carl as a non-violent felon, making him eligible for early release. Non-violent felon? How? He killed someone. No, because he, he only pled guilty to breaking and entering with the intent of murder. Go ahead. 
At the time, Texas allowed not allowed nonviolent felons to have three days deducted from their sentences for every day served as long as they were well behaved. So, of course, Carl, being a model uh, prisoner, is up for early release after only serving 24 years on May 9th of 2006. I am so torn. I literally, there's, I'm, I'm mad. I'm obviously really upset by your story. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I will rail against people being stuck in prison forever. Mm Mm-hmm. And given no opportunity to mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. I understand that I'm an enigma. Mm-hmm. No, 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 you're not. I mean, <laughs> you are. You're beautiful and you're butterfly. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but the, th- the the laws are there to help those who have been wrongly indicted and those who yeah. are, like, in the system for a reason. And in normal circumstances, I think that is a good curvature of the law. I, the laws are written... And the, the philosophy of law is that it is better that a guilty person go free than an innocent person be jailed. Mm-hmm. And if you agree with that philosophy, which I do, which sucks, and I'm angry, like it bugs me. Mm-hmm. The idea of a guilty person out there free is so upsetting. Mm-hmm. But it is better that a guilty person be free than an innocent innocent person be jailed. Yeah. So... He's up for early release. Yeah. Um, I, get, I get all the little bureaucratic steps mm-hmm. of how we got here. I get, oh, I get it. Uh, but the victim's families and lawyers decide to figure out every possible le- legal maneuver in order to keep him in. Which I would, wouldn't you too? Yeah, if yeah, you obviously, were a yeah. Of, yeah. That's how you use the law. You're yeah. going to, yeah. Uh, which includes trying him for the murder of Helen Dutcher, which happened in Michigan. Since they oh, never, they're like, let's just lump it on. Yeah, this isn't going to fly. Let's lump it on. Yeah, they never agreed to a plea, plea bargain. Houston also reopens an older case involving the murder of 14-year-old um, Emily Lacroix. Uh, Carl is promptly charged with the murder of Helen Dutcher. Um, a Michigan jury convicts him on November 17th of 2004. On, November, uh, on December 7th, Carl is sentenced to life imprisonment. Two days later, authorities in Michigan... Uh, start getting their case together for the murder of Gloria Steele in 1974, which is one of the earlier cases. Uh, Carl's tried and again sends to life imprisonment without parole on September 13th, and he's incarcerated at the Maximum Security Prison in Iowa, Michigan. Um, And he died of prostate cancer on September 21st of 2007 in a Jackson, Michigan hospital. Damn! Um, And so... I kind of mentioned this earlier, maybe not, maybe I did. Um, this is one of the most prolific serial killers yeah. that you've never heard of. Yeah. Okay. So, because I said the thing, my guy's got five. Yeah. And you're like, cool story, bro. Mine's got like a hundred. Yeah. It's, so, so his, his, um, the official, it's hard because you get into these official yeah, counts and yeah. then you get into what you actually think it is. So he, he pleaded to, I think, 13. He was like, yes, I did this. Yeah. But he, like, he took him to different burial sites and he, like, gave details about Ooh. 80 crimes. But they think he might be linked from 80 to 100. Damn. So he's one of those ones. He's one of the most prolific, if not the prolific, but you never hear about him. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and in case you want more detail, because there's so much more details, um, an episode of Cold Case Files uh, did an episode about him. Yeah. yeah. And that's your case of Carl Eugene Watts. Damn. Yeah. Joya. Yeah. He was intense. He did. And like, that was the thing again. He was moving around a city to city from country to country. He was going up to Canada. Damn. And that's how he wasn't caught for so long. Yeah. That's not to give serial killers little clues, but move around. I think now it's a little harder. That, That was Edward Edwards thing and what his daughter was talking about when she ratted him out she was like we moved every couple months mm-hmm. oh wow and if you track and like there's people who literally like they take his book mm-hmm. and they're like cool you were here then do 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 these murders yeah. are you yeah. you were here then these murders yeah. are you like it's nuts it's nuts hmm well, there you go, guys. Our 40th episode. We made it. Started I, from the bottom. Now we here. <laughs> Are you clapping for us? Yeah, I clapped. <laughs> I am proud of us. I was so worried. I was so worried for both of us. More myself than you. 
figured you could pull it out. Yeah. Oh, to just drink all that just liquid? All, yeah. Just all. The whole thing was scary. You guys, thank you for listening for this long. We haven't done a call in a while, but I'm going to do it now. If oh. you enjoy listening to us, if you think oh. our banter is witty, if, you, if you've if you learned some stuff, whether it's drink-wise, true crime-wise, or just life-wise, uh, if you have the time or the ability, if you can go over to iTunes and give us a little shout-out, little you, little blurb. You, If we give you a, a, a splinter of joy, yeah, you have to understand how much joy we get out of <laughs> new reviews. Like, stars are awesome. Like, those reviews are great, but, like, a little, like, even a two-sentence thing yeah. is so exciting for us. And, like, not even just the reviews. I think I came to this recording in a really bad mood and, like, we, you know, just work got me down, life got me down. Around. And just, like, getting the opportunity to record these episodes, it it's the highlight of my day, if not my week. And I'm just really, I'm just really stoked to be able to do this. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Kimri. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Drea. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> um, so, yeah, until next week, thank you, guys. You're amazing. Bye. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Killer Cocktails. As always, on our talent was Jackie and Drea. Uh, be sure to check out our Instagram, at Killer Cocktails Podcast, or stop by our website, KillerCocktailsPodcast.com, for up-to-date information, photos, contests, and more. Our logo was created by Michelle Firm, whose amazing art can be found at michellefirmdesign.com. Our music was created by Nikolai Heidlus, and we'll be back next week on Hashtag Murder Mondays. <laughs> the tortoise and the hare. You're doing great, is what I'm trying to tell you. Thank you. You're welcome. I thrive off of compliments. You should. <laughs> okay. You're- Beautiful human being. Thank you. So are you. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have to cut all of them. No, I'm leaving in that I'm beautiful and you're beautiful. (laughs) 